Yesterday was about looking back, now is about looking forward. Yesterday we heard a bit about a good foundation that was laid for this church 50 years ago. And over the past 50 years, people have built on that foundation. But building a church isn't like building this building. You know, you get the roof on, get the last lick of paint on the walls, and you can say it's built. It's not like that with a church, is it? You don't get to a point where you can say it's built and we stop needing to do any building. We need to carry on building for the years ahead. How do we do so? Let's get our answer from 1 Corinthians 3. Would you come with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 3? I spoke from verse 6 yesterday afternoon and I'll be sort of presuming that you heard that and know that but not fully presuming. As we heard yesterday afternoon, if you were here, this chapter has two metaphors, two word pictures of the church. One is the farmer's field and the other is a building. And this evening we're mainly going to be using that building picture. And the basic message we're going to be getting is simple. It is what we do matters. That's from verses 10 to 17. We're going to spend nearly all of our time on that. And then secondly, much more briefly, what we do isn't enough. And then we're going back into the plant picture, verses 6 to 7. What we do matters, what we do isn't enough. That's the simple message this evening. Most of the time is on verses 10 to 17, what we do matters. Now Paul had laid a foundation for the church in Corinth by preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And others were now building. And he says to them, well, be careful how you build on that foundation. Verse 10 and 11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Be careful how you build. Now, I hope it's obvious to you and hardly need saying that these verses are about building the church. Some people have turned them into about building your life personally on Christ. Well, that's a good lesson, isn't it? But it's not here. That's not what these are about. Some people have turned them into about purgatory. Well, that's a bad lesson, and it's definitely not here. They're about building the church. How do you build the church? Well, Paul gives six building materials in the next verse. Verse 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, and they're going down, aren't they, in value? Well, I suppose it depends what the costly stones are, whether they're more valuable than gold or not. But it's basically going down in value. But Paul doesn't make use of them going down in value as he explains what he means. What does he mean? What's the difference between these? Well, the explanation is in verses 13 to 15. The explanation is the building is going to be tested. And it's going to be tested by a fire. Now, when it comes to, I don't know, do you want a house made of diamonds? I don't know that that would be the most practical house to build, to live in, would it? A house made of diamonds? But if something's being tested by fire, you're better off with gold, silver or diamonds, aren't you, than with wood, hay or straw. And the point here is, we've got to build in a way that will last the test that God has. Now, of course, it's all picture language here. It's picture language about God testing, God judging. 
Will our building of the church prove worthwhile in eternity? Will it prove of lasting value when God judges and puts it to the test? Or will it fail the test like wood, hay and straw would fail you if your house is consumed by a fire? What lasts when tested by God? What is the gold, silver and precious stones that can stand the fire and last for eternity and actually stand up to scrutiny on the day of judgment? Well, 1 Corinthians has already told us. We'll have to look back at the two chapters before. In the two chapters before, God's word has been contrasting Christ and his gospel with worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is like this. Chapter 1, verse 19 1 verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. It's like wood, hay, stubble, it won't last. Worldly wisdom is like this, chapter 2 verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. It won't last. See, there's worldly wisdom, confidence in our cleverness and our ideas. It's not lasting. The contrast is Christ and his gospel. Like this, chapter 1, verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. That's all not lasting stuff. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's what will last. There's the gold, silver and precious stones. Okay, hopefully we've established what is the lasting stuff we must build with. Christ and his gospel. What's the wood, hay and stubble we've got to avoid? Worldly wisdom. But why was this being said to the Corinthians? Why was he telling them this? Well, because new teachers had turned up in Corinth. They were impressive-looking people, impressive men with eloquent rhetoric, qualified in Greek philosophy, attractive personalities, new and interesting teachings, admired by society. And the church looked at them and thought, wow. Well, why were we ever listening to that Paul chap? Short little chap, wasn't he, Paul? You could put him in a basket and lower him over the, over the wall. What a, what a funny little man, Paul. He even had bad eyesight as well, it seems. He wasn't an impressive speaker. Yeah, he can write a good letter, but when he turns up, you think, who is this man? And he keeps on about Jesus. We already know about Jesus. We're not new Christians. Who does he think we are? It's time for some more sophisticated teaching. No, says Paul, Those people are building wood, hay and straw. The foundation of the church is Christ and his gospel. And the way to build the church is Christ and his gospel. That's the gold, silver and precious stones. Now, we could easily get this wrong. So, I must add in this. That doesn't mean the only thing we need is just keep on hearing the gospel ABC. That's not what is meant by we've got to build using Christ and his gospel. It doesn't mean gospel ABC every time you turn up to church. Have a look at 1 Corinthians. Well, you probably know it. It's got all sorts of instruction. It has instruction about holiness, but it's holiness because of Christ. It even has a chapter on marriage. 
But Paul hasn't left the gospel. It's marriage based on Christ and his gospel. It talks about relationships to others in society and should you eat that food that might possibly have been sacrificed to idols. And it's all based on Christ and his gospel. It tells you what to do at church. Should you be speaking in tongues or not? But he hasn't left the gospel. 1 Corinthians is full of, it's not just gospel ABC, but he's never left the gospel. He's always drawing out the implications of the gospel. And that's a lesson that we really have got to get hold of. Now, probably some of you know about a chap called Don Carson. Don Carson's a Canadian theologian. He's a bit of the, he's probably the father figure of evangelicals at the moment. He's read more books than probably any of us have ever seen. He's got his amazing brain. And something he said that stuck in my mind is this. He said churches often go like this. The first generation in a church focuses on Christ and his gospel. They're taken up with, with this saviour who's loved them. And they just keep on wanting to hear his gospel. And then the second generation arises that still believes in Christ and his gospel. But, you know, we, we've kept hearing that. That's, we, okay, we've got about Christ and his gospel. We need to work out about Christian education. We need to work out about our responsibility for the poor. We need to work out about how do we relate to society and culture. Now, all those things are good. I'm not going to say any of them are not worthwhile. But it becomes... Yet those are the things we need to focus on. Yes, we believe Christ and his gospel, but Christ and his gospel starts to become like Stephen Palfreman's hairline. It's still there, but it's receded back so you can't see it. Then what happens? The third generation arises, and they've lost Christ and his gospel. Now, Don Carson, who knows a thing or two, says that is a very common pattern. And the second generation have not become unbelievers, but they've taken the focus off where it should be. Yes, they're still believing Christ, but he becomes like background radiation to be presumed. Third generation, it's a different matter. And that church is on its way out. Now, again, it's not that every sermon we hear has to be a variation of John 3.16. That also is that's going to result in immature believers and kill off the church eventually. It's that Hollywell must be built by seeing how all we do relates to the gospel of Christ. And our response to all those issues that we face and we can't put our head in the sand and avoid them, like sexuality, like marriage and relationships, like what you do in your workplace, like how we encourage one another and build each other up, like how we have love, joy, peace, patience. Our response has to be based on the gospel of Christ and get its power from the gospel of Christ. Never leaving the gospel, always drawing out its implications. This is how we build using gold, silver, precious stones. Now, I think that we should think, we've been thinking there about what building materials last. But we ought to think about what building materials fail. You might say, that's a negative subject, why would we want that? Well, it may be negative, but it can help us. One of my brothers-in-law is a building inspector, and he was telling me about what iron beams can do and how they can fail in fire. This might be a bit, sound like it's contradiction in the picture, but he actually said wooden beams can be better in a fire than iron beams, but we mustn't get confused there. But he has to know about what fails. 
You'd expect that of a building inspector so he can make sure that buildings don't fail. So, we need to think, why did the Corinthians need this warning? What were they getting wrong? Now, have you noticed how the word toxic gets used a lot these days? Everything's toxic, isn't it? The one that most comes to my mind is toxic masculinity, whatever that is. Are we a place full of toxic masculinity, I wonder? I don't know, the mind boggles. But the Corinthians had a toxic mix. And the toxic mix was one of self-confidence, pride and divisiveness. They were self-confident, and so they needed to be told, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. They needed that because they were self-confident. They were proud. Verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. Verse 21, So then, no more boasting about men. You see, they're proud. And because of all that, they divided into groups. It's going to happen. If you're you're self-confident or you're proud, proud, which go together, don't they? You're going to end up being divisive. Verse 4. One says, I follow Paul. And another says, I follow Christ. Are you not mere men? You see, they're proud. Paul's the one with all the answers, and we're on his side with him. Apollos is the one, he really put some beef into this church, and we're with him. Proud self-confidence results in division. There is so much of this toxic mix around in evangelicalism today. Proud self-confidence, we can make the church grow. If we find the right method, if we have good music, people will come in. Any church that's got good music grows, doesn't it? If we use the right course, if we train the right people, if we have good teaching, the church will grow. It's automatic, isn't it? And then what's the result? Well, people follow the one they think has got the right method or the right course whether it's Tim Keller or Acts 29 or Nine Marks or Desiring God. And by the way, I've purposely there mentioned ones that I agree with to make the point that it's not that there's something wrong with those people, there's something wrong with the attitude. The attitude that is, I'm of that person because he's got the method and that will make this place grow. Well, that will divide us, won't it? as people back and promote the group they think has the solution. And that is building wood, hay and straw. It's also wood, hay and straw because God has his ways of bringing down our pride, doesn't he? God has his ways of showing up our self-confidence. I'm hesitant to admit this example, but I tend to be self-confident. I'm pretty good at bringing up my children. And when I think more sensibly, I then tremble at that because that is a disaster, isn't it? Because God has his ways of showing up our self-confidence and bringing down our pride. Showing up, you can't do it, you feeble person. You need God to change their hearts. If I'm self-confident, I can bring up my children well. I'm a danger to my children and it makes me tremble. Building the church by confidence in our personality, our understanding, our 
getting people to do things our way, our anything, is wood, hay, stubble, because it tends to produce false converts. Now, there's another way to put this situation in Corinth. It's exactly the same thing, but put, I'm going to put it now in a different way. And it's from chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. They were worldly. Their way of building was worldly. Why was it worldly? Well, they had worldly wisdom. They had worldly boasting. And as a result, they had worldly quarrelling. And so that means the church is going to then become like the world. And that then means the church will be destroyed. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, the church would get destroyed that way. Why? Well, there might still be people turning up in Corinth and people called a church, but it would be destroyed as a distinctive community to the world because it's become like the world. Do you see, has that made sense? Building the church in a way that is like the world, worldly self-confidence, results in a church which is like the world, which destroys any sort of distinctive community that shines as a light in the darkness. Now, I hope the lesson to us is clear, isn't it? If our methods for growing the church are like the world, then we have to expect the church to become like the world. It might be big, it might look successful, but it will be like the world. And therefore it will be destroyed as a distinctive community that stands out and that is a light in the darkness. So some examples... If our way of growing is like the world by not demanding repentance, we'll preach a nice message to you, but we won't take any action if you refuse to repent, and we'll soft-pedal the need to repent. Well, we might get a lot of people, but we'll get unrepentant people, and the church, as a distinctive community, will be destroyed. If we grow the church like the world by putting an emphasis on show and image, we'll get superficial people and be destroyed. If we grow the church like the world by, well, we'll offer services to you and you pick what you want, then we'll get uncommitted people who are not self-denyingly devoted to God and the church might get full, but as a distinctive community, it will be destroyed. Well, we've had building materials that last, building materials that fail. Does it matter? Does it really matter? Well, I hope it's obvious that I'm saying it matters, and I hope I've made clear that it matters. I hope we're left without any doubt that it matters, but to try and push it further, verse 16 and 17 tell us, oh yes, this certainly matters. And they do it positively and negatively. Here's the positive reason it matters. The positive reason is verse 16. Look at what the church should be. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? The positive reason it matters is look what the church is. Now, have you ever considered what an ironic question verse 16 is? Don't you know you're God's temple and the Holy Spirit is in you? Think who he's saying it to. Which church in the New Testament seemed to have most activity of the Spirit? Which church in the New Testament was most pleased with its spiritual gifts? 
Which church in the New Testament had most what we'd call today charismatic phenomena? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Corinth. And to them, he says, don't you know you're God's temple with the Holy Spirit? Now, by the way, this isn't an anti-charismatic point. What you think of tongues and prophecy, you'd have to get from elsewhere from this point. This is a point about priorities. You see, Paul's question shows to us that the temple of the Holy Spirit isn't demonstrated by prophecy and tongues, but is demonstrated by corporate Christ-like character. It's demonstrated by united love and humility and holiness and servant-heartedness in this united way that's different from the world. Isn't that attractive? Wouldn't that stand out from the world? Isn't that a shining light? Well, there's positive reason to make sure we're building gold, silver, precious stones. Don't damage this beautiful thing, the temple of God, the residence of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a negative reason it matters in verse 17. Negative reason. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. If you are self-confident or divisive, or worldly, and you persist in it, you could destroy the church. And God will not be laid back about that. And God won't say, oh, they're long-standing members of the church, they must be okay. No, God will say, there is evidence of a heart that is not right, and he will destroy you. So humble yourself and turn to Christ for the heart change you need. That was all my first point. But my second point is far briefer. But I think it's possibly more important than the first one. My second point is this. What we do isn't enough. Now I hope I have made it clear and unavoidable, I've been trying to, that what we do matters. But we must remember it's not enough. Let's go back to the other picture. We've, we've been in the church as a building. Let's go back to the church as a farmer's field. Verse 6 and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Or as Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. All our building activity is useless unless God builds. All our planting and watering is useless unless God makes it grow. And he's unlikely to do that if we're not recognising we're in his hands, totally dependent on him. It's not going to happen just by our efforts, our abilities. Let's imagine building something different. Let's imagine building a hospital. And imagine it's a hospital for heart patients. And you build this hospital and you have a big car park. And you build it where there are good transport links. And you work at good links with the GPs. Now those three mean you should get a lot of patients in. And you build top-notch admin facilities. That keeps all of your office workers happy. And you have brand new buildings. And you have a Michelin-starred restaurant. That's rather unrealistic in a hospital. But let's imagine you manage that one. 
but you didn't ask the heart surgeons what they want. And you've got no heart surgeons. Well, for all your car park and your restaurant and your admin facilities, you might as well close down, mightn't you? Because a heart hospital without a heart surgeon is pretty useless. Close down. Now, you can see where this is going, can't you? Because the church is a hospital for heart patients. So whatever else we have, however good our ideas, whatever else we do, and we could do until we're worn down to the bone, if we don't have the heart surgeon, the Holy Spirit, no one will be saved. No one will grow. No heart will be changed. We might as well close down. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if we don't have him, we might as well close down? Well, we better ask what the heart surgeon wants, haven't we? And thank God it's not hard to find out from the Bible. It's not rocket science, and it's all things that should characterise Christians. The Bible's clear. What does the Holy Spirit want? He wants focus on the Lord Jesus, because he loves him. He wants holy living, that's rather obvious in his name. And he wants people with a humble, prayerful sense of, we need him, and he doesn't just tag along automatically if we do some good teaching. Is that us? These things are not just optional extras that might make the church go a bit better. These are vital, in the literal sense of vital. We have no life without them. The church doesn't need people with great management skills, although that's helpful. It needs people who are holy. The church doesn't need people with big personalities, although they can be helpful, they can be a right pain. It needs people who are humbly reliant on God. The church doesn't need the best musicians and the best teachers, although they could be a good thing. It needs people focused on the Lord Jesus. Because we need the Holy Spirit. Because unless the Lord builds the house, all our building is in vain. Because unless the Lord makes the plant grow, all our watering will just make the ground soggy. Well, it's been a good first 50 years for Hollywell, hasn't it? I think we can safely say it's been a good first 50 years for Hollywell. But that does not guarantee Hollywell's future. Churches are fragile. The plant is easily killed by disease from inside, by pests from outside. But this isn't supposed to be a negative message. I hope it hasn't been. Sorry if it's been a bit. It's not supposed to be. What we do matters, but what we do isn't enough. We need the God who makes the plant grow. We need the God who builds the house. And thank God he is willing and ready to work. And we need to seek him.